Hi everyone, you're listening to another episode of the Style Files podcast. I'm your host, Paloma Contreras, and joining me today is one of the brightest luminaries from within the world of design, ceramicist and lamp designer, Christopher Spitzmiller. Christopher's iconic ceramic lamp designs draw inspiration from classical forms and traditional gem-like glazes. He began his career in Georgetown in Washington, D.C., where he worked out of an old school house near Dumberton Oaks. Shortly thereafter, his work received critical acclaim and his reputation as a noteworthy ceramicist began to emerge. In the summers, he worked from Meacox Gardens in Southampton as an artist in residence, and such designers as Albert Hadley, Richard Keith Langham, and Suzanne Reinstein began to commission his work. Since 1996, Christopher has been concentrating his efforts on his unique lamp designs. In the fall of 1999, after outgrowing his Washington studio, he moved to New York City where he now creates his one-of-a-kind lamps with his crew of skilled artisans. The lamps are of timeless appeal and luxurious quality. Beautiful classical forms are drenched in bold, vibrant, rich glazes. Each one-of-a-kind lamp is set in a hand-turned hardwood base, which is water gilt with 23 karat yellow gold or 9 karat white gold for a silver finish. Recently, Christopher expanded his designs to tableware and other ceramic accessories and also debuted a line with lighting manufacturer Visual Comfort. Christopher's work is often featured in celebrated publications, such as Architectural Digest, House Beautiful, El Decor, Departures, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. He has had the honor of making lamps for the past two White House administrations, as well as the Blair House and other distinguished American homes, and his lamps have become a staple in the toolbox of every top designer in the world. When not in the studio, Christopher can be found at his farm in Millbrook, New York, gardening, beekeeping, making jam, cooking for friends, or tending to his flock of heritage breed chickens, all of which we'll hear about today. He also enjoys the pleasure of giving back to the community by serving on the board of the local time-honored Lenox Hill Neighborhood House and as the vice chair of the Kipps Bay Boys and Girls Club President's Dinner. Christopher, we're so delighted to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm doing really well. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Are you up at your farm in um, Dutchess County? Yeah, I'm up here. And, you know, the garden is beginning to eke out spring. It sort of takes a step forward and then a step back. We've had some really cold nights and some, some um, you know, frost that I'm hoping are behind us. Hopefully soon. Sounds like spring has been quite a tease out there. Totally. totally. <laughs> do you have big plans? Do you, do you do something different every year? I know you have quite the green thumb. Well, we're putting in a vegetable garden this year. You know, it's going to be a garden for just Anthony. He's a landscape architect, my partner. Mm-hmm. And he designed it and is, you know, um, doing everything. And I'm trying to step back and not, you know, get involved in it. And I can, I can say, oh, let's grow this thing or this kind of bean or pea or whatever, but I'm trying to stand back and let his design aesthetic shine. I know you're both excellent cooks, it seems like, or at least that's what I've gleaned from seeing your Instagram stories. So do aesthetics win over um, practicality in terms of what you plant then? Um, You know, all this stuff will be edible, but yeah, we're trying to get, like I, I bought this last night, something called... Kentucky pole beans which grow really tall 
you know, I had some of the French um, green beans here, which are more of a shrub bushy one. And we'll plant the shrub bushy one down around the bottom and then have the big pole going up with the beans coming off of it. So aesthetics are a big part of it. There's four um, terracotta pots that we're going to put figs in. In the center of it is an urn that my mom gave me for Christmas. And then there's two um, old Gothic benches that are on either side of it. And we're going to put some um, a table out there to have lunch or tea or whatever, you know? So yeah, aesthetics. And then we're doing um, these, uh, tile like terracotta garden edge things and my mom gave me a bunch of old ones and we've run we're not going to have enough to do the whole thing so I'm looking into making them as a product and producing them you know instead of like mm -hmm. going out there and purchasing however many tiles I need I might spend the same amount of money on the machinery that it'll take to produce them and maybe it'll become a new product for us to make you know so there's there's fun different shoot offs going on through it. That's amazing. So Chris, you seem to have such a gift for, I guess, what's the word? Creating, fostering, um, living such a beautiful lifestyle, such a well-rounded lifestyle. You obviously have an amazing eye for design and we'll talk more about um, your, your beautiful company designing the most amazing lamps, but it, that sense of style, your eye, that wonderful sense of graciousness really seems to permeate every corner of your life from the fact that you love to host friends over at the farm for lovely cozy suppers to you know the actually being able to grow just about anything you set your mind to and your chickens and all of these wonderful things how did you learn how like about plants and raising animals and all of these things where did you grow up I grew up outside of Buffalo is where I'm from, outside of Buffalo, New York. I was from this little country town called East Aurora. And for most of my childhood and even before that, we were out in the country even further. And my father had an enormous vegetable garden. And my older half siblings who are Texans referred to it as the work camp. <laughs> and they'd be sent out there to work. And I was too young to realize what was going on. And they, they took a little sand pail and they put a little piece of... Um, clothesline on it and I would pick peas and I would sit there and eat the peas until I would practically turn green and my mother would scream at me those are gonna make you sick <laughs> <laughs> you know so there was always gardening but then I lived in the city and I had my apartment and then I bought this house and in the beginning years I just did renovation I had to really keep on track and you know, do new fireplaces and new heating systems and new like basic stuff because Albert Hadley used to always say, you got to get the bones right before you do anything else. And I stuck to that and I had small vegetable gardens and like in one area where I have a chicken coop run now, there was a, a vegetable garden that I grew corn and peas and all this stuff. And I quickly realized that I could buy all of that at the farmer's market, but what I couldn't buy there were like big armfuls of flowers. So once I got done with the house, I, I built that big garden that I have. And now I grow over 400 dahlias a year. There's probably 500 different peony plants here and, you know, sequential 
flowerings of stuff so that we have something from early spring, like say now our daffodils and narcissus are coming. And then at the end of the season, it's the dahlias and them discovering constantly other things like monk's hood that flowers in October. You know, the big challenge is, you know, it used to be that sort of say after about mid-August when the lilies finished, there was no flowers here. Now I'm happy that there's flowers right until the frost comes. That's so wonderful. I can't think of a, a better place to to quarantine and hole up in for a few months at a time because it, I'm sure there's always something to keep you busy and then beauty in every corner. Yeah, you know, there's an old Grange Hall that's across from my house that I purchased a few years into owning it. And I like looked up the information to call to see if the building would ever be for sale because it was unoccupied. And I didn't make the phone call because I looked around my kitchen and I was like, you need a new kitchen before you need the building next door. You're not even going to make that phone call. <laughs> and this old guy came down my driveway and he knocked on the door and he said, you know, my school teacher lived here when I was a kid. And this is literally two weeks after this whole, I'm not going to make the phone call thing. And he said, I'm the head of the Grange and we we're thinking about selling it. And I said, well, how much do you want for it? And he goes, well, just north of $100,000. And I'm like, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> so I bought it and I didn't really know what this building would be. But when we started to make plates and dishes we don't have room for that in new york and so the whole first floor is outfitted as a pottery and i can go over there and work and just the hours just melt away and what drew me to pottery in the beginning was working alone and like you know i need the people who work for me and they are very good and very talented people but there's just this this period of being able to work solidly just myself has been a, a blessing so there are some some blessings that are going to come out of this, I think. Well, certainly. Well, speaking of your home, um, it's called Clovebrook Farm, and it's this idyllic, wonderful home and, and farm in Millbrook, New York, where you have a fabulous slew of neighbors, including Ashley Whitaker and Nick Olson, who have been on the podcast, as well as Katie Ritter and Peter Penoyer. What inspired you initially to, to buy this house in the country? And what has it been like working on the renovation over the years? So when I got to New York, I knew about like Darien, Connecticut and Greenwich and, you know, um, the Hamptons and the Long Island things. And sure. those places in my mind were not really country. When I lived in Washington, D.C., where I lived before New York, I'd spend a lot of weekends out in Charlottesville, which is really rolling, nice horse country. And my friend Jamie Creel who owns Creel and Gow, his parents had a house up here and I would come and stay at their house. And that's what turned me into Millbrook. And then Connie Newbury, who's a good friend and client and Jerry Bland, his, her brother mm -hmm. are up here. So I had like, you know, four friends to begin with and I fell in love with the area. And in, initially, I, a lot of years ago, I dated Todd Romano and Todd Romano and I shared a house up here together. And it was like a little kind of Nantuckety kind of, you know, country sort of shacky thing. And he wanted just that much more than I wanted to spend on it at the end of the time. And when he was done with it, and I found this house that I'm in now, and even he says, Oh, honey, you ended up in a much better place than, than that other house you did right by it. Uh, John Robshaw calls this the grown up version of a house. Um, <laughs> it has a, it has a big presence, but the funny thing is, is it's not a very big house. Like, I think it's 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 less than 300 square feet and the the living room and the the uh, library my bedrooms are 15 by 15 and downstairs there's nine foot ceilings and upstairs there's eight foot ceilings so it's got these great 
moldings over each room. They're like a whole different set of Greek revival moldings that are, you know, between 12 and 14 inches thick. They're really incredibly um, ballsy, I would say. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people wouldn't dare put that kind of stuff in a house these days. Um, but I love it. And I saw, I, I squinted my eyes and I saw through all of the decrepancy that was going on. There were honeybees living in the walls and bats in the attic and this, that, and the other, and, you know, poor heat and blue bathrooms and, and other bathrooms that you had to jump across a threshold of a staircase to get to, um, you know, so we changed all those things or I changed all those things over a period of about five years of slowly, you know, new windows, new fireplaces, new heating things. And, you know, back then, Margaret Russell was at AD and she kept calling me, I want to come up there and photograph it. And I'd be like, well, you want to come shoot these new chimneys or the new heating system? You're welcome <laughs> to. But I don't think there's anything in here that you're going to be interested in right now. You know, I would buy an old sofa at like Christie's and use that and just waited until I got all this done. I, I did have dinner parties and lunches and I had people over all of the time mm -hmm. because I feel like you got to share your house, whatever stage of the process that you're in, you know? Well, sure. And what year was the house built? So the kitchen part, which extends off the back, is the late 1700s. And there must have been a, a floor above it where people slept at night. And the back staircase is still there. And then when the farmers did better in 1830 or 1840, and don't know exactly when, but they added on the big Greek revival part to the front of it. And since then, the footprint of the house has not changed. I did reconfigure the flow of some of the rooms because some of the rooms just no longer made sense the way they were. And the old owner did a blog post about it and said, Christopher Switzerland made sense of all these spaces that hadn't for years made sense. And it was such a compliment because usually the old owner can't ever say anything good about the new owner. So I was really <laughs> thrilled for that. Well, you've certainly done the house justice. Did you consult with any of your designer and architect friends since your circle seems to be filled with them? So there's a great architect, Jonathan Parison, who helped me with the the architecture and the flow. And he still continues to help me like with the dove code and with the pool house. I'll provide him with a sketch of what I want to do. And then Jonathan does it all proportionately so that it all fits. And, you know, it's a very collaborative process. And then on the interior, Harry Heisman, my longtime friend who worked for Albert Hadley, helped me with the interiors. And it's, you know, Harry says it's it's not like work when I'm dealing with Chris, it's, it's more like, you know, I I'll send him things and he'll send me things and, you know, we figure it all out. And a lot of it's done on text, but he comes up here and stays about three, four times a year. The most amazing thing that he does is he comes up at Christmas and strings every light on my Christmas tree. And he's got this way where you double wrap the things and the, the it takes him two days to put all the, the wiring on there. I just roll my eyes yeah. on it as it goes and keep him well fed. We had a little tense moment this, this last Christmas when at 11 o'clock we were sitting at the kitchen table and I said, Harry, you know, and he looks up at me and goes, I'm off. <laughs> I'm off. That's so funny. Well, he sounds more patient than I am to, to do that all. <laughs> now, speaking of, you you had a little fire at Christmas, didn't you? We did. We had a, um, so I'm working on a book with Rizzoli and the book is 
going to be a year at Clovebrook Farm, and it covers all the seasons from the begin spring through Christmas. And we were getting ready for the Christmas shoot, and I'd stayed up till like you know one o'clock one night, three o'clock the other night, doing all this stuff because Christmas is taken really very seriously here. And I had this mantle that was all swagged um, in greenery and then things around this, this mirror. And the one fireplace never draws well. And I was using some newspaper to warm the fireplace and a downdraft occurred and it pushed the flame out onto the swag that I had hung entirely too low. And it's a good lesson in, in things. And um, I ran to the kitchen when I realized that a real fire was occurring because it's just like they say, it was like a tinderbox. It all just just went up. Oh, like, gosh. Boom. And, you know, it happened so fast. And I ran in the kitchen, I grabbed a bowl and I yelled fire. And thankfully, Anthony remembered where the fire extinguisher, which I only at that point had one in the house. But he went down to the basement, got it, came up. He and the photographer, Andy Ingalls, put the fire out like wham, bam. Thank you, ma'am. It was it was done. But it's like a good lesson that you need to have a, a small fire extinguisher by every fireplace and at least one on every floor of your house and check them to be sure that they're all good. Mine was 14 years old and it worked fine. <laughs> so I was very lucky with that. But like, you know, had it been not working, I might have lost my house from that. Right. It was, it was really scary and really, really humbling. And the Christmas tree was about five feet away from this all. And if the Christmas tree had caught on fire as well, too, we would have just really lost everything. But we carried on and we got a good shoot out of that day. We had to, like, pick the tablecloth up and get all the little bit of dust, you know, smoke bunnies that had fallen on it off. And, you know, the you know, I, I, I don't let things get in the way. of I just carry on and. It's all fixed up now, and it was an opportunity to bring in a new fabric and reupholster a chair. So, well, that's yeah. that's a good attitude to have. I'm so glad that you guys were able to think on your feet and that you were able to control the situation and get the shot. It sounds like you you were able to complete the <laughs> the photo shoot. Most importantly. <laughs> yeah. So that's great. Well, I mean, that's certainly scary, and things can change as we know all too well nowadays in the blink of an eye. So best to be prepared as, as much as you can be. So Chris, let's go back a little bit um, to the beginning. Have you always known that you were destined to be in a creative field? Did you know as a, as a young person that you would eventually be this potter and lamp designer and end up where you are today? So I went to, I grew up outside of Buffalo in this little country town East Aurora that I mentioned before. And my mom worked for a jeweler at the time in Buffalo. And there was somebody who drove me into the city in the afternoon. And I would take a, this is like before preschool, like pre-kindergarten kind of stuff. And I'd take a ceramics class there. And I remember making piggy banks and little bowls. And I loved the idea of making something that people could use. And as I went through school, I took ceramics whenever it was available to me. And in my boarding school, I had a great teacher and a great place to do at Proctor Academy in New Hampshire. And I really, really excelled. And they had something that was called a ceramics major. And that's a little misnomer because being a ceramics major only meant that you got a grade in the, in the thing instead of it being on an elective class where, you know, you got to pass or fail. And I told my mom I was going to be a ceramics major one parent's weekend, and she pulled the car over to the side of the road and was like, oh, no, honey, you need to find something to do that's more lucrative than this. And I listened to what she said, and I, I, I took it to heed, and I went on to St. Lawrence University and 
went to Rhode Island School of Design sequentially, and I studied ceramics. But all along, I thought that there was going to be some like normal job in PR or whatever. And I graduated and I moved to Washington, D.C., and I worked for um, the Clintons because, first of all, there was no job to be found. I was looking for a job. There wasn't anything. My roommate at the time was friends with the White House intern director. And she said, why don't you come be an intern? There was an opening in the press office and there was an opening in the social office. And I said, well, what would be more interesting? And she goes, I'll do the social office. It would be much more interesting. So I worked for Anstock and I would answer the phone and collect people's social security numbers and date of birth because when you're invited to the White House, you can't have any outstanding taxes or crimes or anything. So they flush all that out. Mm. And that was one of our jobs. And I was I was part of the class of interns that Monica was in. It was it's funny. I didn't know her. She was not a friend of mine. I always say like yeah. it would have been much quieter had she been, because we wouldn't have let any of that cat out of the bag. Right. Um So I was there and then I got a job with an event planner and I worked for a couple of months. And then my I went up to Cape Cod where my grandfather had a summer house and I got together a body of work and I had a show at a store in Georgetown and the show did really well. And Meacock's Gardens was opening up then and they said, why don't you come be Potter in residence? So I packed up my car with my kiln and I drove up to the Hamptons and I made all these dishes and the dishes either broke as they were coming out of the kiln or shortly after. Oh no! It was really sort of disastrous. So like I had to borrow $200 from Mac Hoke to get my sorry little butt back to Washington, D.C., but what came out of that summer, the silver lining that I didn't realize was happening at that time is I met Richard Keith Langham and Richard said, would you make some lamps for me? And they'll look like this and they'll be in this color and we'll need them in two weeks. And I did it. And, you know, I remember at the time stumbling over like the price and what they should cost. And I said to my boyfriend at the time, I'm like, oh, maybe they'd be like $75. And he looked at me and he goes, no, no. He's like, they will be $500 a piece and he will be happy to pay that. And I'm like, Okay, you know, and I like look back at a moment that defines the sort of like beginning of the financial sort of freedom that I have. It was it was definitely that moment. And, you know, I've just I I outgrew the studio in Washington and I saw that everything was either going out to L.A. or to New York. And I took a deep breath and I moved up to New York and I rebuilt the business there. And it's been 20 years that I've been there for I've been in business for I think it's 24 this year now or something congratulations so. that's incredible did did you start to focus on lamps pretty early on or after doing that project yeah after that summer of coming back from Mecox, i started to just do primarily lamps and i would send packages of pictures to say 10 designers that I would see in AD or House Beautiful or whatever and and say, send them out. And, you know, I sent them to Bill Hodgins, Albert Hadley, Tom Pheasant and Barbara Berry. And all those people picked up the phone and called me and said, we want these. Like Barbara even had me do all the lamps for one of her introductions of furniture she had done at Baker, you know. So there were a lot of doors that just sort of were very welcoming from the very beginning, thankfully to what I was doing. That's amazing. Well, it's a testament to to your talent and the beauty that you were creating and also having the moxie to, to go after, you know, some of the top designers and, and say, I have something I think you might find useful and beautiful. Um, 
Well, it's moxie and it's a little bit of tenacity. Sure. Like with that thing with Barbara, I was late in getting my things done. I had made myself a schedule and it was, I think, 36 laps I needed to deliver for them. And like it was coming down to the deadline. And I realized that unless I had to overnight these things to high point, they weren't going to get there on norm normal delivery. So I got in my car and I drove from Washington to high point and I delivered them myself. And they were so impressed by the personal delivery that they got. They had no idea that I was just saving my own little butt from this, you know, catastrophe. But, you know, that's the thing is I tell people who work for me, we sell lamps. We don't sell excuses. No. You know, we've got to get that thing done and it's got to be there on time and it's got to be the best. And if it's not going to be there, we call them weeks ahead and we tell them, listen, it's not going to work out. We can send you X, Y and Z to fill in in the meantime. But like I believe in keeping clients in the loop and let them know what's going on. And we don't screw up very often, but occasionally it does happen and you, you have to take ownership over it and give people some warning. That's such an important lesson for people to remember. If you're listening and you happen to have a business of your own, it's just so important to come from a place of transparency. And I think half the battle when you're in business for yourself is managing expectations, managing the expectations of your customers and clients yeah. and just being really upfront. And if something goes wrong, you have to own it and you have to figure out yeah. an alternative solution. I love that. Yeah. We make lamps, not excuses. Uh -huh. <laughs> so to, again going sort of back to why lamps i i suppose obviously all of these dots started to connect but it kind of goes back to what you initially thought as a child going um to your pottery classes and thinking how nice it was to be able to make a piggy bank something useful so obviously these lamps are something that's not only beautiful but useful so how wonderful that you could come full circle in in a way it really is. It's really nice to open up a shelter magazine and see some lamps in, say, a home in L.A. or Houston or someplace. And I, I don't even know the designer, you know, a lot of the times. I mean, I pride myself in, in having good connections to a lot of people in the design world. But listen, there's people out there who are designed that I don't mm -hmm. know who buy my lamps and put them in people's houses. And it's just it's such a great feeling knowing that you can enrich somebody's life and and make it better in a way. Absolutely. Well, your art, I mean, your um, lamps are so incredibly beautiful. They're like pieces of art. And one of the things that I love most about them are the beautiful glazes. They have such rich, richness of color and such wonderful depth. What is your color philosophy? My color philosophy is contrast. I don't like rooms that are all, say, beige or white or whatever i like to be the like bright orange or canary yellow or prussian blue dot against that beige background and stuff you know and to stand out we do make lamps that are white we do make lamps that are beige and i have no problem selling them but my own personal aesthetic is always to be is contracting to have as much contrast as possible sort of like what miles does and what nick right. does to that pop of color is is what i sort of strive for and go for your prussian blue is probably one of my favorites that's what i have in my house that i just yeah but you, that color you it's weird because it's such a specific color but you can put that color in pretty much any room any color scheme and it will work. It's it's rare that we, you know, we come up with these things occasionally where you can just put that room in, you know, any place and it just, it, it just, it's, it fits in and it works and it's, it's a, it's a never fail. It's so true. What are your most popular colors? 
Well, that's been a long time popular color. We do one that's called spruce. That's a, a bright springy green. Um, that's really nice. Um, there's a dark espresso that's really good. Um, you know, we do sell a lot of white and clear. We have some matte colors that are really good. Um, you know, it, it varies. I mean, we offer, I think, 75 to 80 colors that are stock colors, you know, that you can order from. And then we can do custom colors as well, too. The range of custom colors, like there's, we know there's some bright pinks that we just can't get. But on the whole, we're pretty able to to nail down colors and send out three different color choices that people can get. So yeah, you guys make it really yeah. easy, which is great. Well, isn't that what business is all about? As I say, like, you know, it's, you don't want to make it hard. It's like, this is what we have. This is what we can do. And I like dealing with showrooms and stores who know what I'm able to produce. And that way they can say, oh yeah, he can do that. Or, oh no, that's not the thing. You know, I mean, it's, as you said before, it's the client conversation and the transparency that gets people that it's, it's all about honesty. I mean, that's the only, when you have an icky business experience with somebody, you just don't want to go back to it. And as long as it's transparent and you tell people what you're up to, it's, it's all right. good. Absolutely. So. Are you currently working on, on anything new? Are there any new product launches happening in 2020? <clears throat> so the, the main thing that I've been working on for a while that's really fun is Kathy Graham and I have done a collaboration in plates and she's done these woodland um, bunnies and robins and cauliflowers that we're applying and selling to, to um, Smythe Reed has been, been the big sort of buyer of these that they're in Nashville and do trunk shows, shows all over. So I've been like struggling because the plate to fit cap these things has got to be exactly 11 and one fourth inch when it comes out of the kiln and it's fired and the glaze is on it. Otherwise that decal won't, will not fit on there. So we're like, cutting and measuring and with clay you know you can never get an exact thing with it so we we're, we've been working on those and um you know with visual comfort there's those new wall sconces that are called lead sconces that everybody's excited about that i'm waiting on three to come into my bathroom here i like them so much um I think of anything else. I mean, that vegetable garden that I started to talk about, that's, that's, that's always my most exciting thing. I always say if I put as much effort into my work as I put into my garden, I'd probably be a lot, but a lot better off. But you know, <laughs> you do the things that you love, I think, and it all, it all sort of falls into place. That's what that's I tell right. young kids. I'm like, you, you got to do what you love. And then mostly the money will follow. And if the money doesn't follow, it's fine because you love what you do. And, you know, I really enjoy doing what I do. And I, I, I never, I mean, yeah, we all have bad days. Listen, I don't always skip to work, but I really, at the core of my existence, I love what I do. I love making these plates or lamps or, you know, the, these new garden tiles that I talked about. Like, that's a lot of fun. That's so great. Well, do you have any easy tips for those of us with black black thumbs um <laughs> you know they say the biggest thing is over watering in plants is you know with my house up in millbrook where i'm at for the weekends i water on either sunday or monday morning before i go back to the city and there's a few plants that need more water than that like i grow australian tree ferns and there are some um, topiaries here that need a lot of water and those things are watered three times a week but like you know orchids 
they need to be dry before you water them again. And most plants actually kind of like to dry out. The, as I said, the topiaries and the tree ferns and stuff, you don't want to mm-hmm. do that with. So it's it's figuring out the sort of things that will work and the sunny corners of your house that things will thrive. Like you just can't put, you know, something in a dark place because it's just not going to make it. So thankfully this house has got these super wide windows and they all get a lot of light. My, my apartment in New York is on the ground floor and it like, it gets, I can grow like three things. Like Martha gave me a money plant that I can grow there, but it's really pathetic. I do a lot of bulbs and cut flowers and stuff. And there's a little outdoor area that I can grow some stuff in there, but you know, you just do, you figure out what will work for you and, and then venture off. From yeah. There. It takes a little trial and error. That's good advice. Yeah. I mean, and I don't give up if some, if I fail at something, I just keep reading about it and moving it to different locations. And, you know, there's one rose that I'm trying for like the fifth time here that I've just not been able to grow. And I just, I keep ordering it. And, you know, if I'm not able to grow it this year, I'll probably order it again next year. I, I order less of them every year instead of ordering like 20, I might order like six or three of them to see maybe like give those three a little more attention and see if it'll work. Right. That's great. I love that you don't give up. What is currently inspiring you? Mm. Where do you turn for inspiration? Well, you know, I mean, we've been cooking so much. I mean, I've learned to make sourdough bread in this time <laughs> and like, you know, setting the table and, you know, I mean, it's glum. I mean, it, it's bucolic as my surrounding is up here and it's pretty there. There still is this this like looming thing of like when we go back, what will business look like, you know, there is there is anxiety and there is, you know, a little bit of like, you know, kind of gloomy depression that goes on. But I try not to let that get in the way. And I try to um, have, which I've always had the mindset of like, well, maybe if we don't have that much demand, we can cut back. And instead of having, you know, 12 people, we have seven people or six people. And that way we can make the financial equation of running a business work and, do all those steps. Um, we're getting a lot of requests for estimates mm-hmm. now. We're not getting so many actual orders, but it's it makes me feel good to hear that people are out there, you know, ready to, to get going again once this all, all clears. Yes, hopefully so. It seems like the general consensus that I've been hearing and what I've experienced myself is most people are eager to move forward. They might be... Um, hitting the pause button for a little bit just to see how this all shakes out. But I think people really do need a distraction and they, they want to get their houses done. Well, yeah, like Alex Pavagrissini says to me, he's like, he thinks his clients after being cooped up in their house for a while are going to be like, well, we really need to do something mm-hmm. about this. Let's, let's freshen it up, which is, I, 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 I pray that's the case. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that will be. I hope so too. Is there a rule in design that you absolutely live by? Um, rule and design that I absolutely live by. I mean, that contrast thing, whether I'm setting a table or decorating is something that I try and bring in. Um, you know, I was walking with Nick Olson the other day and we were walking through a cemetery and I remembered one thing that Albert Hadley said. He goes, you know, you can't make a headboard too tall because it starts looking like a tombstone. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's a lot of Albertisms that I do. Like, as I said at the beginning of the thing, like you got to get the bones right before you do anything else. You know, like 
you know, if the doorways aren't lined up or your windows aren't quite right, like get those things done right away because you don't want to be dealing with those things while you're living in a house or you're in there. Although I did live in my house for every minute that I could, I had to move into the Grange Hall for a period of time when we re-insulated, but you know, I don't know. Well, speaking of Mr. Hadley, who are some of your style icons? Well, you know, he was a big one and he was, you know, such a gentleman. I mean, current day ones that are, are sort of around me, you know, uh, I love Bunny Williams. I love her in a lot of ways. I love, um, I think Nick Olson, who lives down the street from me, is one of the most talented young people out there. And then, um, oh, I'm, I'm going to remember his name, James Carter in Lexington, Kentucky. I think he's a oh, Matthew, unknown, Matthew Carter. you yes. know, Matthew yes. Carter, excuse me, Matthew Carter. James Carter is a, my architect friend who's another right, talent in Birmingham. In, in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but Matthew is great. He's decorating at Keeneland now. And his, his color sense is very in tune with what I do. And I admire it. Yeah, a lot. I see how that would be simpatico. He, he uses color so beautifully and pairs color combinations that you wouldn't think of right off the bat, but they always work. You know, give things a try. I mean, it doesn't cost you anything to take a fabric sample and put it up in your house and say, let's just give this a try and the thing harry's always told me is like you can't ever pick that color in new york you have to be up in the house in the room where the thing is going to go before you make that decision so i try and adhere to that so i know that you started your career in washington and you cheekily refer to yourself as the potter to the presidents how many presidents have had your lamps in the white house during their time of residence Well, the Clintons were my first clients, but they didn't have any in the house. They had things for their house in Washington and in Chappaqua. They bought an enormous amount of stuff. And then the George Bushes had some in the upstairs of the White House. And then the Obamas had a a big run. They had the ones in the Oval Office, which was my big moment of becoming the potter to the president, (laughs) which was so great. And, you know, there were a pair in her office that my friend Roy Hamilton had done, um, and there were lots upstairs and we're making some things for the Kennedy Center presidential box right now for the Trumps. And there's another thing we've got in the pipeline for that that hasn't gone been solidified yet that is going to happen. So it's three actual in the house and four presidents that I have done work. That's for. incredible. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. I mean, that's like one of those things that I never imagined. Like when I was an intern there, I was like, you know, to make something for this house, like no way, because the people who work there down to the cleaning staff that clean that place and keep it spick and span, there's so much pride in that house. And it's a beautiful thing to have had just a little bit of time to take on and and to continue to make things for. I love that we're still still are in contact. Absolutely. That's quite a story, actually, to go from being an intern in uh, the social office to having, you know, made lamps for multiple presidents. How amazing. What brings you the most joy, Chris? Um, You know, there's a number of things. I think gardening is a big joy to me and seeing the progression of, of, of life from a seed to a plant, to a flower, and then to seeing it die. You know, when I'm out there, or go into dormancy. They don't all die. They all sometimes go into a dormant state and then spring back. Um, 
it's seeing that it's like better than being in church for me because it's it's like being in a cathedral of like of life and i don't think of any of the failures that i've had and or anybody who's not called me back or any of the pettiness that we all sometimes get even myself wrapped up in sometimes and then i've got all these birds here i have doves and heritage breed chickens and right now we're hatching and i've got these three baby geese that i i could i sit over there and i hold them in my arms and pick them up and spend time with them it's just it's so great to be able to nurture something that's not as strong as you and give it some life and give it some hope and then eventually turn it free in a barn in a pasture and let them out like today chickens are wandering around the farm here looking for worms and bugs and they're creating great manure that eventually will be composted and put on the rose gardens and different stuff i mean it's the cycle of life that you can see that i find the most joy in that and eating too you know i have to say i'm 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 what they say a good eater (laughs) (laughs) it all sounds idyllic and i can definitely relate to being a good eater i think i've been eating a little bit more than my fair share lately (laughs) no i know i've got to do something i've got this this book that i'm reading all these friends of mine are big fans of dr mark hyman who's up here in great barrington and he's written something called the 10-day sugar detox diet and i'm going to give the 10-day sugar detox diet a try and we'll let you know how that goes because i mean it's just like you just can't help like going for the second piece of bread in times like this i mean it's like you know i don't drink so that's my sort of downfall is like the chocolate chip cookie or the piece of bread or the Reese's pieces like those are the things that kind of sneak in that I'm like okay we got to reel this in honey because eventually we're going to be going back out there in public well hopefully we can't wear turtlenecks all yeah, day long anymore. I think we're all going to so. be in the same boat so hopefully we'll we'll be a little less judgmental when we see one another emerge <laughs> <laughs> a little larger than before I just ordered this program that I I had read about called the Prolon Fast Mimicking Diet. And it tricks your body into thinking it's fasting for five days, but you're still eating a minimal amount of specially designed food. And I'm kind of excited Mm -hmm. about it because I feel like I definitely need to do something. I can't continue eating and drinking like I have been, but I'm also kind of terrified because I do love food. And I'm just like, am I going to be in this terrible mood the entire time? I saw um, Gwyneth Paltrow has a a show on Netflix called the goop lab and she gave it a try and she had a hard time on it. And I'm thinking, well, if Gwyneth can barely get through it, how am I going to do it? But I am going to give it a shot. So I will let you know how that goes. You know, it's the first three days of getting off of sugar that are really bad. But I tell you that third night when I've done it, I've done things like the whole 30 before. And that third night, the quality of sleep that you get is so much Mm -hmm. deeper and better. And it's less hours. Like you don't sleep as long as um, Right. Yeah. Yeah. The quality of sleep is so much better. You're absolutely right. Chris, is there anything that people might be surprised to learn about Mm. you? I mean, that bird thing, there's this funny story where like a friend of mine was in a store on Madison Avenue and she overheard two women who probably follow me on Instagram or knew about me somehow. And they're like, what do you think he has birds up there? Well, they're awfully dirty. I don't think he would have birds because, you know, he looks like a clean sort of fellow. But I love 
birds. I mean, it is a challenge to keep up after them. We clean our coops out every two weeks here and put fresh shavings down in between, but they, they're a mess. But I'm like this chicken person at heart. There's this movie that if you can watch on your Amazon Prime called The Chicken People, which is like Best in Show, but it's actual real life people. And they show professionally these chickens. And I go to these shows and bring Martha along and we buy birds and then I breed them. And I have these great relationships with all these breeders out there. And it's like, the, it's I don't know, we all can't be friends with other decorators. you got to vary your life a little bit and have some different things in it I think that would be a little bit of a surprise and you know when I go to a dinner party or a cocktail party people want to hear about my bees or my chickens like these are the kind of like outskirt things that I never took on as like oh this will give me something to talk about but that's really what people get interest from sure that's that's a good reminder and Speaking of chickens, there's so many different varieties. I didn't realize until I was in Bermuda with Sarah Bray a couple of years ago, and we went to some kind of like flower and livestock show or something, this big event that they have every spring there. And one of the events was, I guess, like the, the different chickens. And I, I couldn't tell you how many different types they were. there were, but they were so They beautiful. really are, and they have great language of of relating to each other and sometimes they're mean and sometimes they're sweet and they're a lot more like people than I think you get credit for or they get credit for. Mm -hmm. Sure. If you could go back in time, is there a piece of advice that you would give your younger self? Don't be so hard on yourself. I mean, it's hard because there's this thing of like, if you're, I am a perfectionist and I am driven and you need to um, be those things in order to succeed to the level that I have. But I, I remember like being out in LA at a show at Hollyhock and like thinking I was fat. And like, I look back at pictures of myself and I'm like, you weren't fat, you're fat now, but you weren't fat, <laughs> 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 fat back then. You know, I mean, it's stuff like that. It's like, just, I mean, do put your best foot forward and, you know, do what you can. But like, there's some moments where I think I was a little bit harder on myself than I've needed to be. And, you know, Mario Boada used to always tell me, he was like, honey, you got to laugh. You know, there needs to be some humor involved in every level of what we do, whether it's, you know, gardening or work or or personal lives that like humor is really the thing that binds us together. Absolutely. Well, to that end, we're recording this conversation in the midst of staying at home during the coronavirus pandemic. What has this experience taught you? Have you found a silver lining? You know, it's scary sometimes and I do get overwhelmed and I do let it get the best of me, but I try not to. I try to be um, constructive in my thought process and constructive in being like, well, you know, maybe some adjustments are going to need to be made. But um, I mean, the big question, the rhetorical question that you're going to laugh at, I, I asked Harry Heisman and I asked Anthony, I go, so have I bought my last set of Porto sheets? This is, the- <laughs> no, I mean, this is my like worry factor. And they're, they're like, no, honey, you may not for a few years, but you'll be back on the wagon at some point. And I think, I think that we're going to get yes. through this. I think it's going to require some some big maneuvering. I think it's going to be a lot harder than it was in 2008. Um, But I think that, you know, landlords are going to have to be, you know, sympathetic. And I think there's going to need to be a lot of adjustments on a lot of different levels that we're going to have to make. And 
well, I'll, I'll get it to work. I'm not a quitter. You know, you know that about me. And I think that a lot of us mm-hmm. will just, just figure it out, you know. That's right. I mean, that's yeah. the only choice we have. And we're not going to give up. Right. Come on. You know. Absolutely not. Well, Chris, what is currently giving you hope? What gives me hope? You know, I keep going back to it, but seeing like the different flowers grow and we're in this stage right now where my hornbeam that holds its leaves all winter is letting go of the leaves and new buds are coming out of it. And, you know, every day I take a walk with Ashley and Nick and Katie Ritter comes with us. That gives me hope. I, the exercises, I think, is really important to surviving through this. Um, so... That, that's what gives me hope. That's wonderful. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time. This has been so lovely. You've been a ray of sunshine in my day. And I can't wait to see you me hopefully too. soon me when too. this is I can't all wait behind to see us. anyone. I mean, come on. Come on. I mean. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We'll take good care Bye-bye. and we'll talk to you soon. Okay. That was internationally renowned ceramicist, lamp designer, and potter to the president, Christopher Spitzmiller. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Be sure to visit us online at thestylefilespodcast.com, where you can find more episodes featuring inspiring conversations with creatives. You can listen directly on our website or subscribe via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying The Style Files, please consider leaving us a positive rating or review. It will only take a few seconds of your time and it will make a very big difference for us. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.